Hello, Dmitry Arkadievich Mazepin here, father of Grand Prix Gropist Nikita Mazepin and Tsar of Ural Kali. Here at Haas Formula One team, we are in no way influenced by the politics of Russian government. However, just to be absolutely clear, during the forthcoming season, we will be extending our garage in the pit lane to include the independent breakaway garages of our neighboring teams. Unfortunately, as we are at the back of the grid, this means only one team on one side. So, from now on, half the Alfa Romeo garage is now part of Uralkali Haas territory. This includes the number 24 car and its driver, comrade Guan Yu Zhou. Ah, uh, what the heck, let's have the Finnish driver too, for old Soviet times sake. Up the revolution! Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed and welcome back to Sarah Leach who's been away in Australia for how long, Sarah? Two months, two glorious months. And how glorious was it? It was very glorious, sun shining every day. I went surfing most days. I'm no Kelly Slater, but I do enjoy being in the ocean, that's for sure. Uh, lots of beach action, lots of beach bombing, lots of family catch-up time. Got to see a lot of my friends and it was just a true delight, to be honest, because I haven't been yeah. home for two whole years with all of this COVID kerfuffle, which is now thankfully over. That must have been lovely being there. Hopefully you're back and refreshed. I'm refreshed and I'm tan. And also joining us from somewhere less glamorous than Australia, uh, where telephones ring. <laughs> is that for you, Zog? I hope not. No, no, no. Ignore it. Okay, I'll ignore it. Hi, How are you, brother? You're right. Yeah, getting by. Thanks. Only slightly depressed to hear what a wonderful time my colleague has been having down under. It would have been summer, of course, in the southern hemisphere. So you've been having fantastic weather, hanging around on the beach. We've had a couple of months of constant wind, rain, misery, cold. So thank you. Yes, thank you for telling us what a wonderful time you've been having in the sun, surrounded by all those beautiful, lovely, friendly Australians. <sighs> yeah, we are full of envy, Lovely Sarah. to see you again. Welcome yeah, back. Thank you very much. It's yeah. good to be back. And I tell you what, I do not feel jealous at all about <laughs> the way no, you've been No, no, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. And Sarah, have you been following F1 News? What's got your attention since you got back? I've been following F1 News. I've been seeing all the new liveries, which is very interesting. Some have changed dramatically, some of them not so much. But the news is that, well, it was on the news last year, but it's sort of come to the fore this year, is that Michael Andretti is aiming to field a new team in Formula One for 2024. So the news, well, the conversation opens last year when there was interest in Andretti taking over the Sauber team, who run the Alfa Romeo F1 team. But that collapsed, that offer, because I think the deal was that they weren't able to take full control of that team. And I think what Andretti want to do is have their own team where they can control it completely themselves. So it was Mario, Michael's father, that broke the news on social media. He put a post on Twitter and I'll read it out. It says, Michael has applied to the FIA to field a new F1 team starting in 2024. His entry, Andretti Global, has the resources and checks every box. He is awaiting the FIA's determination. 
So they have to now put in a formal application with the FIA, I believe. Is that right, Gareth? Yeah, that's correct. And the FIA have actually responded. What did they say to this? They said, the FIA is not currently in a position to consider or comment on any expressions of interest or applications received from potential new entrance teams in respect to the FIA Formula One World Championship. That's very dry, isn't it? Zog, what do you read from this? Are they just being careful or are they actually rebuffing Andretti's advances, would you guess? My feeling is that it's probably just a dry, formal kind of response. I don't think it's a snub. Why would you snub a potential new entry from an outfit with real racing pedigree, heritage, a brand name that Formula One should be happy to have back in the sport? I think the Andretti name still means a lot to a lot of people. And of course, it means a lot to a lot of people in North America and South America more than it does in Europe for example and you know F1 wants to build its appeal outside its older more established markets so surely an Andretti entry would be a good thing for the sport they should be welcoming that you would think yeah as a lot of fans would welcome it I'm not quite clear from the Andretti statement whether they were saying we're going to be putting up 200 million dollars for a brand new all new team that will be in addition to the current line of teams or whether they're going to buy into a team in a couple of years time there was an Alpha Tauri was it Alpha Tauri though was some spec or Alpha Alpha Romeo Romeo, yes it was the Alpha Romeo Sauber possible title yeah exactly so it seems to me it's not entirely clear whether it's going to be a new operation taking over an old operation but it's a clear signal of intent from Andretti and that seems like a good thing to me at least it seems to me from what has been mooted I don't know how official this is that they're talking about the team building the car in Indianapolis, but having a UK base, which rather suggests that they're going to run it themselves. If they're going to have a UK base, they're not going to buy somewhere as massive. Who's on the market? You know, it ain't going to be Aston Martin. It could be Williams. It's not going to be McLaren unless Andretti is on some massive revenge trip. Because remember, Michael Andretti drove for McLaren When was it? Early 90s. And he had a dreadful half season before he was dropped and replaced by Mika Hakkinen, who is brought over from the ailing Lotus team. And Andretti's name in Formula One was slightly damaged by Michael's struggles to match the performance of other drivers. So, no, I'm teasing. I don't think he's driven by revenge. I think he's driven by extreme ability. They're a crack team Andretti. Exactly what you said. If the FIA turned down a proper American team, because the Haas team, I'd like to say that they're an American team, but really they're a European team with American and Russian money. So yeah, absolutely. If we're going to win over America to Formula One properly, you need the Andretti name there. That's a great idea. I hope it happens. It's a story that's going to go on for a long while. I hear that they've got some massive sponsors, Andretti. I can't remember the name of the company. starts with a G, who've sponsored the Andretti IndyCar team. I think, but Colton Hurt is pretty good, Mm -hmm. but is he good enough for Formula One? The only way to find out is to put him in an F1 car. This one hasn't gone away, won't go away, and I hope it doesn't go away. I'd love to see Andretti in F1. I think there'd be loads of American sponsors that would be interested to get them on the global scene. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. You mentioned Andretti has an IndyCar team. They've also got a Formula E team and an Extreme E team. So they're sort of covering all their bases now, and 
Yeah, sounds like they've got some money. One of the things I heard was that one of the reasons Andretti are considering Formula One is that they make dampers, which are used by NASCAR teams. And the technology that they have to make dampers, they reckon they can turn to making an entire F1 car. Yeah, Good luck with that, Andretti. Yeah, the way it ended up, I'm not so sure that makes sense. One thing that did, as you started down that, I did wonder, though, one of the things that happened this year with the regulations is that the suspension has got simpler. Yeah. Basically, the teams aren't going to have quite as complicated a front suspension setup with quite as many bits you know, cylinders and extra bits hanging off the mechanism to make it work in ever more complicated and finely controlled ways. And if you're simplifying it, that presumably means that the fewer components that you have left are each more important. So the dampers that you have in that system are more important than they were last year. So that's why Andretti suddenly thought, yep, F1's where we need to be. Doesn't actually seem terribly likely when I say it out loud. But that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went through the same thought process as me. Yeah, like, okay. Really? Dampers from yeah, you? Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. While we're on the subject of speculation, the other thing that I heard was that Laurent Rossi, who sort of runs the Alpine F1 operation, and therefore Renault, was spotted at Andretti's headquarters in Indianapolis and had his photo taken shaking hands with Andretti kind of suggesting that there may be an engine deal there for Renault to supply Andretti. Now, that makes sense because Renault only supply the Alpine team at the moment. For economies of scale, they've got to supply another team. However, it's also been suggested that Andretti's move into Formula One is Ford looking for a way back into Formula One and that ultimately Andretti might come in with Renault for a year or two and then once they've debugged the race part of it, Ford would come in as an engine supplier, which would make me enormously happy. I think Ford should be an F1. I think everyone should be an F1, but definitely Ford. Hey, who knows? Okay, should we talk about the new cars? Oh, yeah. There's some very exciting new cars. Sarah, what do you know about the rules that have given us these new cars? I do know a bit about these new rules. It depends what you'd like to know. Actually, they're regulations rather than rules, aren't they? Sporting regulations... Technical rules, or is it technical regulations and sporting rules? I don't know. I think both regulations, but yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about the car. What are they aiming to do with the new aerodynamics? Because they've changed everything, haven't they? What's the end game here? Why have they gone to ground effect and these less complicated front wings and additional aerodynamic bits down the side, the barge boards? They've largely gone, haven't they? Yes. Well, okay, so I think the end game, which is what I think you're alluding to, is that F1's calculations suggest that with the new rules this year, a car following directly behind another will retain 85% of its total downforce when one metre behind, rather than 57% in previous years. That's a big difference. Will it work? I'm guessing that they've done all sorts of computational flow dynamic simulations of cars running behind each other. But we won't really know until we see real cars running up the same track in Barcelona. Now, we're recording this show on the Tuesday. The Barcelona 
test, which isn't going to be televised, grr, starts tomorrow. And it won't be until we've got cars running nose to tail that we will actually know if these rules work. Are you optimistic, Zog? Yeah, I think they've thought this through pretty carefully. They've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about this new iteration of the rules. Adrian Newey himself said that he thought it was the biggest rule shake-up in 40 years. Yeah. And he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And the aero aspects of the rule changes are absolutely sort of top of the list in terms of addressing, like I say, Sarah, issues that people knew needed to be addressed, including the problem of losing downforce when you're following another vehicle, making it harder to overtake. And part of the expected payoff of the new aero regulations are that we will be able to lose DRS over the next couple of years. Yeah. I'm not quite clear how quickly they're expecting to be able to move on this, but I I believe it's possible that they may start removing some DRS zones even maybe this year. Oh, really? I think it's going to be a case of let's see how this plays out. Let's see how it works. But yeah, but I believe the idea is to be able to start removing DRS zones as soon as you can. Yeah, and it's been well thought through. It's going to work at least to some extent. Just how much? Well, we're going to find out when the racing starts. But I'm optimistic. The cars are notably different now that we've seen some real cars. We still haven't seen the real Red Bull. And as of the day that we're making this program, we still haven't seen the Alfa Romeo at all. But there are lots of things happening on the cars, which I'm absolutely fascinated by. The way that the front wing now has fewer elements and Mm. they're outwashing the air around the tyres or the new bigger wheels. But the combination of these bigger wheels and this longer droop snoot nose and the lack of aerodynamic appendages down the side of the car, barge boards, etc., is making the cars look a lot sleeker and a lot quicker. I do like the look. But of all the cars that have appeared at the moment, the two I'm most interested in, I think, are the Ferrari and the Aston Martin, and of course, the Mercedes. We still don't know about the Red Bull. And it's to do with the gills. Yes. The fact that they've got all these gills appearing down the side of the car now, allowing hot air to escape. It's kind of lovely. It's reminiscent of the golden age of Grand Prix in the 1930s, where we had gills on the auto union and Mercedes of that period. And I think it evokes the history of Formula One in that. But the most interesting of all the cars is the Ferrari, the F175, which has got what appears to be two huge gullies, valleys, going down the side of the car. The top side of the side pod have this huge concave. Yeah, kind of like a trough down the top side of each side pod. That's the word, a trough. I saw that. My first thought is, the mechanics are going to love that. You've got somewhere to put your tools. <laughs> well, of course, Italians being practical will have thought of that. Well, yeah, hey, so. but hey, anybody who has spent any time working on a car knows that you're always dropping things in the engine bay where it may turn out that you don't see it for several months because, you know, you didn't notice you dropped it. And then it's only when you dismantle that part of the engine bay that that, that particular spanner or socket comes to light again. I'm not saying this has happened to me, but I believe it happens. Yeah, so the mechanics will love it. Zog, it has happened to you, I'm certain. Yeah, of it. Yeah, it happens yeah, to a, all of happened. us. I remember finding a spanner in my Lancia that had been there for about two years once, <laughs> I reckon. I don't know if any deficit on the performance. It was probably rusted into the chassis by that point, wasn't it? it was, oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
that Lancia was a lovely car, but we know how they rust. You know. <laughs> yes, and it did. Sarah, of all the cars, which one's got your attention? I mean, there's some lovely new liveries and some changed colours for good reason. Anything that's tickled your trousers? I think a few of them look really good. Mm. I really like the tone, the turquoise green of the new Aston Martin. It's a bit more of a shinier look, right? That looks good. Yeah, they said they were going to change the colour, didn't they? And they have. It's quite a subtle change, but they have. So yeah. it looks less like the Mercedes. But of course, the Mercedes isn't black anymore, is it? It's half silver now. So I think they had that black car to show respect to sort of the diversity angle. But yeah, so Mercedes is back to having some silver on it. I like the McLaren with that touch of like a beautiful sort of blue, like an aqua blue with the orange. Yeah. That looks good. I don't think that's anything to do with a sponsor. I think it's just, you know, a splash of color. With papaya, looks good on the Australian. <laughs> Of course it does. You want to see blue on a car driven by an Australian nice spot girl. Yes. 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 Um, the Williams looks good. That's different, isn't it? That's also got a bit of like a sea blue with a navy blue. I like that one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's sort of slightly different coloured blue panels on it. And I think the only way that Williams could paint their car all blue at the moment is because Alpine have moved away from French blue, haven't they? Yeah, Alpine is probably the most prolific change as well as probably Aston Martin. Alpine have now got sort of pink all over it, pink and blue, whereas last year Alpine was very French. They went for the French colours, the national colours of blue, white and red. And now it's with the new sponsor BWT, they've got pink. Do you know why BWT, the water company, have gone to Alpine as sponsors, you two? Do you know the reason? No, I don't. Uh, no. The answer is Otmar Snavnauer, who was dropped oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, in the been. reshuffle at what is now Aston Martin. And it's a bit political at Alpine at the moment. The management structure there is a bit weird, in my opinion. And Otmar was sidelined, but he was snapped up by Aston Martin, not just for his managerial skills and his technical abilities, I hope, but also the fact that he can bring a huge sponsor. So he brought BWT over to Alpine, allowing Alpine to paint the car pink. And of course, they have to verify all the liveries with the car with Formula One before they run, so we don't have identical cars. And when they announced, I would imagine, to the authorities that they were going to have a pink sponsor, that enabled Williams to paint their car blue, I'm guessing. Since we talk about the look of the cars after the launches, my quick takeaways were, first of all, that I'm really happy to see that the rule changes seem to have resulted in teams taking quite different approaches to some particular parts of the cars. Mm -hmm. Side pods we've mentioned, this is the big area where you can see real differences in what teams are doing. The Ferrari, as you say, Gareth, has those very striking... Gullies. Troughs, gullies in the top of the side pods. The Aston Martin has those beautiful louvres, gills, all along the side, completely different to the Ferrari. Look at the front of the side pods, you've got those very, very narrow intakes on the... The top of the side pods. The the Williams... No, Ferrari, isn't it? Ferrari, sorry. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. The enormous intakes on the front of the Williams side pod, for example. You've got very different approaches to the way that the sort of bottleneck sucking in of the side 
side pods is going on the different cars. So, yeah, we've got different solutions there. The rear wings are a lot more similar at just a first glance, at least when you're looking at that rear view of the car, the following car view, the rear wings are looking pretty similar and very elegant, I think. That simple, smooth line, I think, looks very, very appealing. And again, the front wings, we're seeing a lot of differences there. The Williams, for example, is working the middle part of the wing much, much harder. It's got much more aerofoil in the centre part of the wing, whereas other teams are using the outer part of the wing a lot more. Yeah, yeah. There seems to be two fields of thought, as I understand about this. Do you manage the air going over the top of the car or do you send the air to the tunnel, the Venturi, underneath the car. And the question is, you know, do you load it at the front end? Do you load it at the back end? I have a slight concern about ground effect because the reason that we dropped ground effect previously was that because cars were running with brushes down the side of the side pods, which gave a perfect aerodynamic seal with the ground... When those brushes failed to seal with the ground, there was a massive drop in grip. And so you had a car that was very sensitive. It either had loads of grip or downforce, I should say, or it suddenly gave up and you had cars sort of spinning Mm. off at high speeds on corners. Mm. Now, I know that the new ground effect rules don't allow brushes to make contact with the ground, giving it a perfect aerodynamic seal. But I'm fairly certain, reading between the lines from what the FIA said about flex testing, is that the teams are going to be pushing the boundaries of how much that floor will distort to allow them to create a better seal around the edge of the side pod. Really? Yeah, yeah, the FIA have said... This sounds very odd. I'm highly sceptical at this point. Well, the FIA have said that they are willing to either increase or decrease the flex testing of the floors by 20% over this season, possibly as early as the first three races, to prevent this from happening. Have they explicitly said that it's to do with preventing flexing? I'm just trying to see how any kind of flexing of the floor can give you any difference in sealing around the edge of the chassis. And I just can't see how that would happen because I just don't see how you're going to be able to bend any part of the edge of that tray or body down enough to make any difference at all. I can see how a bit of difference in flexing in kind of the body of the underside could make a significant difference to how the air is travelling through the body of that under tray, uh, underbody. But I really struggle to see how there could be any significant effect at the edge of the chassis. As I understand, all the stuff around the edge of the car that's providing any kind of seal, if there is any kind of seal in inverted commas, it's all to do with aerodynamic effects of the vortices, you know, coming off the front wing with vortices produced by air coming out at the lip of the under tray. It's that kind of stuff. Well, I think they may have been talking about what they call the T-tray, which is the beginning of the floor, which happens underneath the driver, between the front wheels and the driver. And whether Mm -hmm. there's any flexing in that, that'd be the bit that's going to be able to move most, I'm guessing. But these guys are very clever engineers, and they're basically doing magic, as far as I can see. I like to think I understand aerodynamics to a certain degree. But there's stuff going on here. I've been watching a lot of video where ex 
Mercedes aerodynamicists have been analysing how they're managing the airflow, and they lost me. I couldn't follow it. I couldn't actually understand what he was trying to say. So we'll see. I think there's going to be protests over the season regarding legality of cars, I would think, and it'll bet it comes from Red Bull to start with. And while we're on Red Bull, very quickly, so we've only got a minute or two left on this. We started the show with speculation. We'll finish this part of the show with speculation. You must be very excited about the speculation that Porsche are going to be Red Bull's engine partner in future. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting development. Obviously, there's been a fair amount of talk over the last couple of years, I guess, of maybe longer, about whether Porsche might come into F1. They've been expressing an interest in coming into the sport, but, you know, I've seemed quite wary of it for all kinds of reasons. They were linked to Williams. There was talk about whether they'd be hooking up with Williams with a longer-term plan that might start to come together in 25, 26, something like that. Yeah, but just recently, it seems like Red Bull are in the frame now for a tie-up. And while Honda are continuing their association with Red Bull, understandably, as Red Bull have had more success than maybe they'd expected, Honda are keen to extend their relationship, carry on working with them. But that's not going to last forever. And it seems like it's really only the last kind of details that are holding up this Red Bull Porsche tie up now. It's just the I think the VAG group board have to make a decision, have to sign off this deal, basically. So, yeah, expect news very soon. And it may be good news for Red Bull. And it'll be good news for you because you'd love to have Porsche in it. I'd love to have Porsche back in the spot. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So fingers crossed. Sarah? How does it feel to be back at the dawn of a new season? Are you actually excited or are you sort of baffled by the technology? What's your view finally? I think you guys have got one up on me in terms of the fine details of the new technology. (laughs) But I am very much looking forward to it because there'll be more parity between teams. So it might be quite nice to see quite a few different drivers jump on the podiums this year. Yeah, let's all celebrate the potential of that. That'd be good. Sarah, it's lovely to have you back. Thank you for joining us for part one. We're going to release you now because in part two, we've got... Alex Goy to tell us about something I know he's excited about and Zog and I are very, very intrigued about. Sarah, lovely to have you. Take care. Bye. 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 Cheers, Sarah. Whilst we are all obviously genuinely excited about the new Formula One season with new cars and new rules and new regulations and new aerodynamics... There is one significant element from Formula One in 2022 which is missing. 21 wins, 103 podiums and one world championship. This is the first season of F1 we've had for as long as I can remember almost without Kimi Matthias Raikkonen. So I've written this song, not in the style of any other band. This is just me being me, celebrating the Iceman. When you turn up, you are like no other. Faster than friends and Schumacher's brother. You ushered in an ice age, your talent was mammoth. You turned another page, the Iceman come up. Leave me alone, I know what I'm doing. You don't have to tell me all of the time. When Kimmy's at the track, they're trouble brewing. He says, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing. Doesn't say much, he's no Kimmy Schmidt He stays stunned, keeps his thought close-knit Did he miss? Fell 
Sunday's presentation Jimmy took a shit and shot the nation Leave me alone, I know what I'm doing You don't have to tell me all of the time When Jimmy's at the track, they trouble brewing He says, leave me alone, I know what I'm doing Massive balls. It protects my head. motoring journalist is a joyful thing because every now and again somebody turns up at your front door with an exciting car for you to drive and then rather disappointingly maybe a week later if you're lucky they take it away which is exactly what has just happened to Alex Guy. Good afternoon Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, hello. That's the sole reason why I wasn't in the first bit talking about Formula One, honest. Ah really? <laughs> what just happened? What just came and went in your life? A man just turned up and took my Hyundai i20N and I'm very, very angry about that because it was really good. I've had one of those weeks where people have started calling me up at the last minute going, can you just? Which meant I didn't get as much of a chance to drive it as I would have wanted to. But I did get to take it to the Midlands and hoon around the countryside. And I shall save the in-depth stuff because we have something far more exciting to talk about. But any car that flashes up on the dash, there's an S-Bend coming up. And would you like to put it in its angriest setting is okay in my book. <laughs> That's our kind of car. That was absolutely blinding. I love it to bits. Fantastic. Nice. Yeah, I sense your excitement. I did, in fact, say at the top of the show <laughs> that I knew you had something particularly exciting to talk about from your own personal standpoint. But I think Zog and I are probably intrigued as well. Come on, tell us, what is it? What's the exciting story? Very exciting. So, as of 8 o'clock this morning, according to the embargo, I can finally talk about it. Yeah, it is after 8am on the 24th of February 2022, so that's good. There's a new Morgan three-wheeler. Except it's not called the Morgan three-wheeler anymore. It's called the Super 3. Super 3. This is the kind of thing that only happens every sort of 50 or 100 years, isn't it? What, a new Morgan? <laughs> yeah, a new Morgan three-wheeler. Any new Morgan. There's lots of threes kicking round in it. So now there's still three wheels, but there's also three cylinders to its engine. It's a Ford 1.5 litre EcoBoost thing, but without the boost. So it's got no turbo on it. Yeah. Five-speed Mazda gearbox, just like the one I've got which means it's going to be brilliant. 118 horsepower, 110 pound foot, 
How does that compare in power to the existing three-wheeler which we know you own? Compared to the old ones, there were two power outputs. So if you got an early one, I think pre-17, you could have 82 and a half brake horsepower. And a half. And then emissions regs knocked that down to 62 and a half horsepower, which is quite a big difference, even though yeah. the car weighs nothing. But you could pay to have that put back and then have it separately tested. But you would have to pay a lot of money because the outgoing car was, I think tickling 45 50 grand if you did stuff to it the new one now is 41 and change i think forty-one thousand. good wow so presumably they're thinking of making an awful lot more of these they think it's going to sell more well i think when the last one came out it was roughly thirty thousand. Which for 2012 or 2011 when it came out, that was sort of a reasonable amount of money if you were going to buy a toy. With 10 years of inflation, 41 seems about right. It's that sort of, if you have the money, it's accessible, do the thing. But the most interesting thing about it isn't the price or the power. The power would be fun. Power delivery itself, by the way, the torque kicks in a lot later. So it's quite a revy beast. You've got to rev it super high to get the best out of it. Its turning circle will be better than the last ones, which is great because the turning circle in the last one is shocking (laughs) but it's genuinely fascinating they've done loads of stuff they listened to idiots like me who had concerns to do with touring luggage getting it wet xyz so when it comes to luggage you'll see in the pictures it's covered in these sort of universal fasteners i think it's morgan's first ever patent and what you can do is you can buy a cup holder uh, cup holder (laughs) in a morgan you can buy a phone holder so you can have your iPhone and Google Maps doing its thing. Or you can change the windscreens because they're connected to those as well. Those single bits of superform plastic. So you can have big, tall windscreens for distance. You can have no windscreen at all. You can have short windscreens. You can do whatever you want there. But the coolest thing... A bit like sort of old touring cars and motorbikes from way back when. Those fixings, they've teamed up with a luggage company and Malay London, and you can now have panniers that just clip to the side of the car. Oh, cute. So you can have either a hard suitcase or you can have a Malay bag that you then just put your stuff in, clip it to the side of the car. When you're done, clip it off. There is a new luggage rack at the back, which kind of folds in with the shape of the car, and it's all very futuristic and very cool. But you don't necessarily have to have that if you don't want to, which is great, because I love having the luggage rack on mine, but also the GoPro mount on the back leads a mark, and it's not very nice and all that. So you can just have the stuff clipped onto the side. Now, the even cooler thing, mine has a tonneau cover, so if it starts raining, it won't turn into a bath. With this one, it's essentially a motorbike. So they've got loads of tough leathers and man-made materials if you want to go vegan style Now, the dials are centrally mounted again. They're all digital this time, and the fuel gauge goes down the whole thing, and it's all very 80s-inspired. All the switches have little gaiters on them, but the cool thing about it is you can jet wash it. Huh. So you can leave it outside in a hurricane, and it won't dissolve, which wow. probably will. Zog, what you said about a new Morgan every 50 years, Alex's three-wheeler is a 1930s car to hear that the new what's it called speed three super three super three the new morgan super three super three the fact that it's an 80s car that's 50 years well the digitalness is inspired by the 80s so in okay but basically to back up your point gareth i'm looking at the press release now movie morgan's three-wheeler design language from the biplane era to the jet age <laughs> it marks the company's first new design ethos for two decades so the last like truly original thing was the Aero 8 in 2002 or 2000 yeah. whatever it was now here's the mind-blowing bit 
There's no wood in it. Whoa! None whatsoever? There's no wood in a Morgan for the first time ever. Outrage. I demand a refund. Well, you'll have to put down your 41 grand first. But <laughs> it's a proper revolution. But yeah, there's no wood because the body itself is a superformed aluminium monocoque. It's the company's first monocoque. They've used superformed aluminium before. But yeah, as a construction, it's a first for them, which means it's cheaper to produce, it's stronger. I was chatting with John Wells, their man in charge of the crayons, and he's like, we've tried really hard to break these things, and we can't. They've had it out for thousands of miles of durability testing. It's the most tested Morgan ever made, or something like that. They've actually put so much thought into it, but when you think about it, this is the first car that Morgan's released since their big Italian buyout. Yeah, 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 Because the Plus 6 was announced the same day as the Italian buyout was announced. The Plus Mm. 4 came a year later, and that was essentially, that was developed first anyway, because they needed to get the narrow one sorted so they could then build the wide one. So this one, I heard rumours and chats and what have you about it just before the pandemic... So they were thinking about it, but hadn't done any maths on it or anything like that then. That would be 2019, and that was after they'd been bought out. The layout of the car is different to the previous three-wheeler, because the three-wheeler had that two-cylinder engine sitting in between the two front wheels, exposed. But presumably this new one being a three-cylinder is going to be in what is effectively a bonnet on the car. It's a very different car. Yeah, so there'll be loads of pictures on my various social networks when this goes out, because I'm very excited about it for obvious reasons so the way this one looks is the the whole deal was they didn't want to go for a forward heavy look because that would look like the car's sort of being dragged around and that's not good but the problem they had was the v-twin was such an important visual aspect of the old car they needed to make the front of it a thing still you'd still need something to draw the eye because if you take the v-twin off of the old one it just looks weird But then you've got this sort of extended hood. So what they've done is they've got some quite intricate metalwork along the front, which doesn't ape an engine at all. The engine itself is hidden behind mesh. You know, it's not a very pretty motor at all. It's not a nice thing to look at. It's, you know, it's Mm -hmm. a plastic Ford thing. But you can still see it. But they've got an engine brace across the front. So you still have a little bit of visual drama. And then the cowl over the top of it acts as a sort of air scoop to ram air into the top of it. It's got radiators either side, so between that engine brace and the wheels, behind the suspension, there's radiators that sit between the motor and these, what they call, side blades, which is where you clip your luggage on. So it kind of goes in in a V and it tapers off really, really neatly. So there's still visual drama there, but they were very, very keen that everything sits behind the front wheels, so behind that centre line. I just wanted to point out, this will be lost on the listeners, unfortunately, but I should share this with you. Alex has been grinning like an idiot through almost all of this description of the new Morgan, Uh, so I think this tells us something about what he feels about it. My big worry about it was that it was going to be a sort of sympathetic update of the car that I have, which then all of a sudden will make me feel a bit rubbish because I've got the old one and the old one's a bit naff. But what they've done is they've made it so vastly different. They've thought a lot more of it through. And when they say biplane to jet era, you know, they're not lying. So there's a lockbox under each seat. So you can store things like passports and cameras and expensive Ah. things while you're driving along. You can have like a bungee thing in the side of the car, like in the monocoque, so you can store maps and gloves and things without worrying that they're going to fall over 
anywhere. That whole pannier system is just really, really smart. I love it and I wish I had it when I did my stupid road trip because it just would have made life so much easier. You can unclip your luggage rather than have to ratchet strap everything down. Just, ugh, nightmare. You went all the way to Portugal in yours, didn't you? And back. Wow. <laughs> and back, that's the key bit. I'm really looking forward to seeing this thing in the flesh and props to Morgan for, as you say, Alex, for putting some real innovation in this. You know, what they've done with the chassis there, with the yeah. aluminium chassis, seems to me like, yeah, that, that's really good, solid, very impressive innovation and development from a British car maker that is not a very big company at all. They're not a very big company at all, but they do now have a lot of money behind them. But the really interesting thing about this one is that, well, really, really interesting is that there's nothing on it that doesn't have a purpose. There's no sort of embellishment for the sake of it. So if you look Mm. at the rear, there's a big bit of metal that serves as a sort of jutty-outy thing for the chassis, but it's also where the boot hinges. It's also where a luggage rack attaches. It's also got the rear light and reversing light in it. It's got the Morgan logo embossed in the metal, which is really cool. Nice. It's proper stuff like that and the fact you don't need to have a tonneau cover on it i mean i would which you can get i was told on the day you can get one that clips in like the one on the older cars but you don't need one you don't need any of the stuff you can just like leave it outside and it'll be fine that is brilliant you don't have to worry about it a more practical three-wheeler indeed well this one they say it's more stable it'll actually handle which is good because the old one didn't at all by the sounds of things bits won't drop off it which is good because the old one did do that quite a lot <laughs> uh, <laughs> Alex, your three-wheeler, yeah. is it rear-wheel drive? It's not a front-wheel yeah. drive car, it's a rear-wheel drive. Rear drive, now they've done something to the engineering on this one. So engine at the front, then gearbox, bevel box and drive, but they've done something to the bevel box in this one. So the powertrain meets motorcycle Euro 5, which is good, it's got OBD bits. The bevel box has been re-engineered using a custom tooth profile and drives through a carbon fibre reinforced drive belt. So hopefully, because, look, I'll, I'll level with you, one of the real big weak points on the outgoing car is the bevel box just keeps eating itself right i think i'm still on my original one but it does like to leak fluid a lot the thing i'm concerned about here is that the previous car had what between 60 and 80 brake horsepower this new one's got what 108 did you say 118 brake horsepower 118 the older car was kind of a lumpy low down talky v20 thing whereas the new car you've got to rev it quite high Mm. max power at 6500 rpm max torque at 4500 whereas Mm. mine won't even rev as high as 65 (laughs) and this car is putting that 118 brake horsepower and all those torques through a single wheel at the rear is it a fatter rear wheel than the thing that you've got uh no it's a 15 inch i think it's the same as mine i didn't quite get that far because I had a limited time with it on my own and then uh, weekly magazine Auto Express turned up an hour early for their appointment which was really respectful thanks guys Ooh. thankfully I was also an hour early for mine because they rang me and said do you want to come <laughs> early like, no, sounds great so it was alright no harm no foul but still naughty naughty but this is a car that's going to be right at the limit of front and rear traction isn't it well, again, it depends what rubber it's shod with. So the rear, you can get all sorts of grippy tyres. I've got an all-season tyre on the back of mine. It only gets sketchy when it's really wet or when the tyre's sort of going. And you can make the tyres go quite quickly if you leave every junction in a big hail of smoke, which is something I do a lot. Sorry. <laughs> the fronts on this one. So on the old car, they were tubed motorcycle tyres. Uh-huh. On the new car, they're Avon Speedmasters. The Speedmaster name has been resurrected. 
Let me just double check that. But, yeah, I believe it is. Hang on. Oh, please call her. Uh, we're holding. We're holding. Avon tyres whilst Alex is checking that fact, just to let you know, are owned by... Cooper Tyres, originally indeed. from Ohio. Ah. They used to be suppliers to the A1 GP series, of course. And I think last year, Cooper Tyres, who still own Avon, were bought out by Goodyear. Did you know that? Hmm. So the tyres up front are now no longer tubed. They're a more traditional Avon Speedmaster. The name was resurrected specifically for the Super 3. So they've got yep. Super 3 and Morgan logos all over it. So it's a tyre specifically for that. They're still massive. You know, it's still like the proportions of the car are wheel and then car. Yeah, it's about it four yeah. inches wider than the last car. I'm hoping, Alex, that you've put a reservation down for one. Are you <laughs> going to buy one? Seriously? I cannot afford one. <laughs> I can barely afford the cars I do own. So, no. If I come into some vast amount of money and end up with a garage that can fit two three-wheel cars in it, then I'd be all over that like stink on cheese. But... Anyway, I'm going to drive it later in the year, so I'll let you know how it is. But I imagine it will make my car feel very old, very slow and very rubbish. <laughs> and my guess is it might be a little bit more expensive than new Super 3 than even the price advertised at the moment because of something I read last week in the news when I was researching, or oh, a couple of weeks ago, researching aluminium air batteries. This is the factoid. The price of aluminium surged to a 14-year peak of $3,236 per tonne on Tuesday, two weeks ago, on fears of stretched global supplies, partly due to China placing the city of Bays, I think it's pronounced, could be Bayser, I don't know, a key producer of the metal in COVID lockdown. A base metal, let's acknowledge that. So that's going to push the cost of aluminium up, and as this new car has an aluminium chassis, it's going to be slightly more expensive for poor old Morgan to buy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Which makes the car even more valuable. The price has been set. They've been reading the same stuff you have. They've been doing the same maths that you've been doing. I imagine they've built in some sort of boundary to make sure they don't get stiffed. I think that'll be OK. I'm going to put a bookend on this programme now because we did talk a couple of weeks ago about how the Morgan three-wheeler would be a perfect city car for Zog. Remember that? Yeah. Don't need a cover for it now, Zog. I know, hey, it's looking like a more attractive option by the moment. The new one does look like a blast. But, Zog, I hear that you have an option on a city car. Yeah, yeah, a little little back burner option, as I still don't know whether I'm going to get my beloved 944 Turbo back in nicely fixed shape. I've put my name down on Citroen's waiting list for an Ami. Amazing. Wow. So I don't know whether I will take that option up when it becomes available, but I gave it a bit more thought. And I still think that thing is absolutely the best low-cost urban transport for me or someone you know in my position who thinks like me. It's a cracker. So let's see what happens. A robo-snail incoming. They're so pretty. A robo-snail. That's what it is. Boys, I'm going to hold you to this. Zoggy, if you do go ahead and buy or lease a Citroen Ami, I'm not sure how it works. I'd buy it rather than leasing it. Okay. I believe both are likely to be options, but I'd buy it. Otherwise, I'm letting a leasing company make money out of me, so that seems like a bad idea. If you buy one, I expect your first city journey to be from your part of southwest London to my part of northeast London, so I can have a ride in it. And Alex, when you 
if you get a chance to drive the Super 3, the Super 3. I expect you to do the same. I genuinely think that car can't be pronounced normally. It's all <laughs> you're driving this weekend. Well, I'm off up to Morgan's drive. The new Super 3. <laughs> We've had cars called Super in the past, haven't we? We have the Super Legera, of course, and of course the Hillman Super Minx, but I'm probably the only one old enough to remember that. You've been listening to Gareth Jones on Speed. Earlier on, we had Sarah Leach, but for now, it's goodbye from Zog. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Alex. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. Happy driving, everyone. For information on how to contact the show, see pictures, get song lyrics, follow us on Twitter, find our Facebook fan page, or to sponsor the show, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Wizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed!